My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley, and I do have a correction to make. Uh, you may notice the title of this episode is Genesis uh, 9 and not Genesis 9 and 10, like I promised last time while I was doing my prep for this and uh, getting ready for the next time I would do this. I realized, you know, it'd probably be better if we did 10 and 11 together. So next week, that should be 10 and 11. So sorry for all of you who read ahead. You're, you're just early this time around. And one of the things you got to learn when doing stuff like this is when you're preparing for ministry, when you're preparing for certain things, you just got to be flexible. You got you can have a plan and guess what? Uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. What's the enemy in this circumstance? Well, that's just time with, you know, everything that's going on or just with like the subject matter. I think 10 and 11 go better together. So that's what I'm going to do. So we'll be going, like I said, into Genesis chapter nine today. So thank you for your understanding. We'll be starting in verse one, going all the way to verse seven. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So continuing off to further God's commitment to the new covenant he made. Here we see him bless Noah and his sons so that they might be fruitful and multiply across the earth. God has already done enough for them by saving them from the flood, but because he loved them and wanted to acknowledge their devotion to him, he went above and beyond to bless what remained of humanity so that they would have an easier time to spread across the world. Now, let us recall, there are eight total humans mentioned as being alive here at this point in history. Uh, perhaps Noah's sons had other children before the flood, but if they did, it seems they didn't survive and were judged like the rest of humanity. As Genesis 10 will explicitly mention their offspring as being born after the flood. Uh, we see, uh, in, uh, I think it's first and in second Peter, he mentions there only being eight people alive at this moment in time in the earth. But if we go back there to Witness this scenario in its totality once again raises the question like it did in Genesis uh, 3 and 4 of whether or not humanity would even be able to have offspring without a higher rate of negative genetic mutations that would inevitably, inevitably come from the incestuous unions that would be necessary for humanity to survive. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's like when one of the reasons God eventually does ban incest in the Bible is because of the terrible things that can happen from the unions of it. It causes malformed children. It causes uh, genetic traits that shouldn't be there to pass on. Like if you ever want to see a reason for why we should never engage in incest, look up the Habsburg uh, throne of emperors. 
Or look at what happened to cause the First World War with a bunch of people uh, being very closely related to each other because they just happen to have royal blood. It's a nightmare. It happens all over the time in human history, and it's terrible. But logically, if there are only eight people on the earth, those people have children. Well, one of those children, who are they supposed to marry? So how do we work with that? Well, much like we mentioned earlier in Genesis uh, 4 was how maybe God made more humans after the flood. And this prevented incest from developing. This would mean, however, that those humans were somehow born under the curse of sin, even though they had no direct genetic ties to an ancestor who had done that. Maybe God had shifted humans who were righteous from before the flood and you know, punted them forward in time so that they could become, you know, the husbands and wives of the people here. Like that, that that's an interesting idea, some people have said, but not really a lot of textual basis behind it. And another it has thrown out is that, you know, maybe incest at this time wasn't sinful, like we said before, possibly this being a thing is because that humanity was just genetically pure enough to not be worried about the repercussions of anything that could happen from what we can recognize now as a genetic, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, a detriment that can happen from incestuous relationships now. And it would only be generations later with the degradation caused by sin that it became something we are not told to engage in. Now, also like we've covered before, there is nothing in, in the text that explicitly forbids this yet. Yet regardless of what did happen, God used it to get us to the point today where we are amazingly diverse in our genetics, so perhaps he protected us from what we know happens today in such unions. Uh, my honest answer is I don't know. I, I don't like the idea of him making more people I don't particularly like the idea of, you know, cousins marrying each other or what have you here in this scenario. But whatever happened, happened because we're here today. And I know that because of what it says here. And I'm not trying to shy away from giving you an answer. It's like, I'm being honest. It's like, I don't know for sure what the answer is. There are plenty of things that I'm willing to take a bullet for in this text. Like, I'm willing to take a bullet that we live on a younger earth than other people would like to say. I'm not going to take a bullet for how the heck this works out. I'm not going to take a bullet for who the heck the Nephilim were. Like, I'm going to take a bullet for, you know, I will most definitely take a bullet for Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And without him, we're there's no chance of being saved. I'm taking that bullet every single day. But this one isn't one. So we can ask questions, and I want you to ask questions, but also realize we're not going to get the answer because it's not spelled out for us. As is often in the case, with Genesis. But there we go. So we see also here in the text that God also gives a command that nature is to fear us, building on his earlier command for us to take care of it. Now, there's a lot of evidence behind the idea, and some would say this is when we are first able to become carnivores, and others see it as more of an outright directive that God approves of it being done now after the flood, and we were still carnivores before. Regardless, God has given us command over nature, and we are told to cultivate it as food, whether it be animals or plants. Each has their uses for the human body, and neither is more important than another. Uh, if we recall, and probably not the uh, first and only time I'm going to mention this part of Romans, is going back there, it's okay if your brother or sister is a vegetarian. It's okay if they eat meat exclusively, or if they 
add both together, or if they're a pestitarian, or what have you, if they're vegan, it's okay. God intends for it to be used by us. It's how we choose to use it. Sometimes you get examples like me who use it wrongly to the point where I'm at where I'm at right now in my health. And I have no one to blame but myself for how I eat. So that's wrong. Just as it's wrong for someone to just eat something exclusively and not have other parts of that diet come in that they need because they're a human being and they need protein or they need calcium or what have you in their diet. But they deny themselves that because they don't like it or they don't want it or because it's just easier. It's cheaper to eat this food here and it's terrible for you. So, But what we see here is that God has given his blessing, regardless of whether or not we became carnivores here or not, and said, this is yours. I have provided it for you. Use it. But perhaps most important in these commands is the restriction to not eat blood alongside the meat, which ties into what God is about to say about murder. God directly brings up how blood is life, and once it has been drained from the body, we can no longer live. That sounds like, well, duh, but how long did it take for humanity to realize that? without being directly told, without medical science, without doctors looking at the human body and saying, oh, well, if this happens, well, you're going to end up dead. Or if you lose this, you're going to end up dead. You need this in order to live. You need this specific type of blood. We can't just transfuse your blood with just anything from just anyone. Oh, there are different types. But we don't know that without studying it. And God explicitly spells out, we need that blood in order to survive. And that's one of the reasons why in the sacrificial system, Blood from the animals is used to cover for us because blood is life. And God continues to compound on this idea by cursing those who would murder another, whether the murderer be animal or man, because by murdering, they have taken the life of someone made in the image of God. There is no defense for murdering another person, and to do so is to strike down another human being created in the image of God. This is not talking about self-defense. This is not talking about a just war. It's not saying every time you kill someone, the, their blood is on your hands, like you're a murderer. And I know there's a difference, once again, between kill and murder. God is talking about murder here. And perhaps the reason he brings it up in the first place is that knowing what happened with Cain and Abel when there were only four people on a planet, well, now there's double that, but it could still possibly happen again. As we'll later see in this chapter, the brothers don't always see eye to eye on how things should be done. He decided to voice his concern here so that humanity would know the price of the murder of another, especially with the amount of humans being so small in number. Now, what we don't see in the rest of the text is, you know, Shem killing Japheth or Japheth killing Ham or one of his wives or what have you, because they listened. And because of that, humanity is allowed to grow. Now, that doesn't last very long, mind you. And we're not told explicitly when the next murder happens, but we do know people are people. So while it lasted for a bit, it didn't last as long as it should have, which is forever. <laughs> but such is the state of sin. And we'll move on from there to verses 8 through 17. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to clear my throat there. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, 
Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God, continuing his stance of going above and beyond what he is called to do in this moment in time, promises Noah and all of humanity for all time to never destroy the earth again with a flood, which no doubt would have been a fear they all had well, held if it happened before. If God did it once, then he is most certainly capable of doing it again. But God, rich in mercy, and despite knowing how mankind would do even worse things in the years from the flood to the present day, promised never to do it again. Think of all the atrocities that have happened in the beginning of the 21st century alone. We're talking 23 years out of the entirety of how long humans have been on this planet. There have been genocides, rapes, murders, financial inequality, racism, and so much more evil done in this world in 23 years alone. God, if he so chose to do so, would have been righteous in flooding the world again today, but since he promised not to, we should all be on our knees praising his holy name that he always commits to what he said he would do. I don't know about you, but that, that feels like a hallelujah to me. Because I see what's out there, and I know what I've done. And it's nowhere close to that stuff, but it's still sin. It's still people I've hurt. And I don't know what you've done, but I know you're a human being. And I know you've sinned against them. I know you've hurt other people. And every single bit of that has brought us to where we are today on the earth. All those sins piled together should be righteously wiped out. But God who is rich in mercy, made us a promise not to wipe us out again. Now, sure, he didn't say, oh, I could have wiped them all out in the fire or something like that. No. It's that idea of, like, I'm not going to do this on such a scale again like this until the end of days, which we'll get to that forever from now when we get to uh, Daniel and uh, more books. Well, actually, we'll get to the Gospels after the Pentateuch again, so I'm sure we'll see it there too. But you get my point. There's so much there that we've done. And I say we as humanity as a whole in just those 23 years. And there's been genocides and sexual assaults and murders and everything else before then too. But God hasn't wiped us out yet. That's not his plan this time around. And 
as further proof of his commitment to his promise to never flood the earth again. What does God do? He creates the rainbow, which will serve as a sign for humanity that he is faithful and that we have much to live up to when it comes to following his commands. Where does the rainbow pretty much most of the time come from? After it rains or after a bunch of water has been around. What better way to tie it in? It's like, I'm never going to flood the earth by associating that rainbow with water. It is a beautiful design offered to us, and it's something that we don't treat as well as we should. But the next time you see one, do your best to remember why it exists in the first place and give thanks to God. Like, I forget that all the time. It's like, oh, pretty rainbow, and I move on with my life. Forgetting why it exists in the first place. So we need to be a little better about that. Now we're going to go on a bit of a tangent. I promise it makes sense. Obviously, in more modern times, the rainbow has been co-opted by the LGBTQIA plus movement to mean something it was never supposed to represent. The intent behind the movement using a rainbow is that since it holds multiple colors to represent a beautiful thing, so too is their movement meant to represent the same in their minds. Now, before anyone gets up in arms, let me make this next part clear. I couldn't care less about what symbols they use and neither should you. Why, you ask? Because the original meaning of the rainbow still exists and it doesn't matter what anyone who didn't believe in its original meaning anyways did to the image because they don't care and they don't believe. Shocking. Why would anyone think to do that? Oh, well, look, they don't care. They don't believe. They don't believe in God and his promises. So, of course, why would they act like they do? I see a lot of Christians out there using derogatory terms like the Rainbow Mafia and so on to hate on the LGBTQIA plus community and in so doing have effectively done nothing except to make a world that already hates us hate us even more. I think it's completely ridiculous for Christians to get upset and angry and outraged over the world that doesn't know or worship God acting like the world that doesn't know or worship God. What else do you expect from them? What are you expecting for them to act like you when they don't know God? That's foolishness. They're living in spiritual darkness. I don't expect Ebenezer Scrooge before the events of a Christmas carol to donate to charity. Just like I don't expect a movie made in Hollywood with Hollywood values to produce a film with Christian values. I don't expect when a school bans prayer because the school isn't a Christian establishment, to give people the opportunity to do it. And even then, as Karai Rowe would say, he of foreign saints, I'll see if I can't butcher this for you, buddy. Say, what are they going to do? Control your thoughts? How are they going to know you're praying at school? You can do it whenever you want. You have that power. They don't know your thoughts. It doesn't matter what they do, what they change. You can pray, pray whenever you want to. And you can also be smart, not wherever you want to, wherever you need to be. God is not giving you a spirit of ignorance and stupidity. He expects you to be better than that. Look, those things I mentioned before, to expect anything else from a system that doesn't believe in God to act like it should makes us look like fools to a world that already thinks that you and I are fools for believing in a seemingly spontaneously generated manger baby of Jewish descent who is the son of God, 
died for our sins on a piece of wood, and then magically came back to life three days later after a couple nights earlier telling us all to eat his flesh and blood when we hang out together. Now, I want you all to hear the craziness in there. Now, without the proper context, that sentence is nonsense and filled with inaccuracies. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't tell us to literally eat his flesh and blood. The, the uh, apostles weren't lining up on the cross to be like, all right, it's time, guys. No, he didn't spontaneously generate. God formed him in the womb. How the heck the metaphysics of that work? I don't know. But if you just say it like that, it sounds crazy. What we do sounds crazy to a world that doesn't accept that as truth. So it is true because it is true. It is true to us because it is truth. But to a world that doesn't believe in truth, it's madness. So quit expecting truth to be in a world filled with madness if you yourself haven't put truth out there. So if it's true that without the proper context, that whole sentence I mentioned before about what we believe in is nonsense to the world and filled with inaccuracies to the actual truth, so true is the same for when we throw words we don't understand at people we don't like simply because they don't think the same way we do. And I'm not saying that what they're doing is right. What I am saying is what we do is that we do not help ourselves if we don't understand why they do what they do. If you have never once attempted to understand how someone can go down that path, why they have these feelings, why they want that partner in their life, why they want to be in a culture that supports them, then you have failed them. You're not being a good witness. You're not loving them like we're told to. God didn't put an asterisk beside, you know, treat, love your neighbor as yourself unless they're gay. I, there is no asterisk there in the Bible. You know why? Because it's stupid to think so. Once again, it doesn't mean we say, hey, it's good what you're doing. That's sin, by the way, but that's nah, fine. Like, no, we don't open up our conversations with, hey, buddy, you're going to hell. There's a way to approach this issue, and it isn't by saying they're stealing the rainbow. It's foolishness to think that at some point in time that there was ever a, a cabal of LGBTQIA plus people that were, you know, wringing their hands together menacingly, stroking their cats in their laps menacingly, and laughing menacingly as they all planned as one to steal the rainbow from God. You realize how ridiculous that is to say out loud? And even if it were, could they? Think logically. The rainbow existed long before this idea that they brought up, and it will exist after that, because it's a promise given by God. It doesn't matter what people use it for. The rainbow exists to glorify God. But like with everything else in this earth, it can be used incorrectly to justify anything. People worship the creation instead of the creator. People bring the symbol here, and they start using it incorrectly. That's not right that they do it that way. Don't get me wrong. But it doesn't matter in the end when it comes to developing a relationship with that person. And look, Christians are no better. We abuse the name of God to justify anything and everything that we do. Don't get angry at unbelievers when they play the same game by the same rules all of us have done at some point in time. Instead, be honest about how we as a church and individuals have misrepresented God and then do better. Showing a world that doesn't know him who he really is. You know how many times I've misrepresented God? I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've probably made people walk away. Probably more than one. What do I do? Do I wallow in pity? 
I say, well, I'm a terrible witness. I'm never going to be a good one. Then no. Go back to them, apologize for what you did, and say, hey, this is the truth. I was not acting truthful. Forgive me, please. And if they say no, they say no. That's up to them. The point is you recognized you did what you did was wrong and you went to them. And I know that was a huge tangent there. That probably could have been its own episode elsewhere, but I, I wanted to talk about it because I know it's in the public consciousness right now. And I want to say a little something without getting political or anything like that. It's like, hey, it doesn't matter what other people use the symbol for. Ultimately, it's okay. God's still in control. A rainbow still means what a rainbow is supposed to mean. Move on with your life. Focus on something that matters. And speaking of other things that matter, we are going to Genesis 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, excuse me, excuse me, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. A lot of things in this section of scripture to unpack. First off, Noah, who is still under the curse to till the soil like all people are, put his endeavors into making a vineyard, which would helpfully provide his family with a source of food via the grapes and a far safer drink than water to utilize. Now, I want to stop right there real quick. We're going to get into the alcohol discussion in a bit. But I know a lot of times, especially in Baptist circles, people like to bring up the fact, oh, they just had to drink it because it was cleaner than water. And that's why it was okay then. That's not how this works. It is cleaner than water, which is probably dirty or filled with uh, stuff from the, the ground because most of them got it from groundwater or even the Jordan isn't exactly the cleanest river in the whole earth. And they had a dead sea right there, which had no value whatsoever to keeping them alive because it's all salt water as they live right next to the ocean, which had no value to them to keep them alive. As far as like drinking it, it was safer to drink wine because it keeps a lot of the harmful bacteria and chemicals out of there that would, you know, make things worse for them if they drank from the water. That is true. It is not okay to say, well, God only said it was okay then, and it's not okay now, or or even to say that, oh, they just got the translation wrong. It's it's unfermented grape juice. That has no bearing whatsoever on the original Hebrew, or when we get into the Greek later on. Just stop. You're embarrassing yourself. You're making us all worse. Are we all good? Okay, good. Now, to when it comes to Noah and his vineyard, some would claim 
that this means he invented wine. But personally, I find this claim kind of incredulous. Like, people have been cultivating grapes for wine and plenty of other things for alcohol, too, as far back as we can remember. And if the world before this was bad enough for God to destroy it without alcohol-induced idiocy, then really, we, we as a culture really are way worse than a civilization he's decided to wipe out. Now, it's possible that before this time, no one had ever cultivated wine, created the vineyard, or anything like this. It's possible. But to say it outright, like that's what the text says, like we must be reading separate books. Because <laughs> it doesn't claim that he invents it here. Little tangent. I, we're, we're all over tangents tonight. It's a good night as I'm recording this. Now, we can actually get to the wine part. Before we get into Noah's drunkenness, let us look at wine. Let us look at alcohol. Obviously, I come from a Southern Baptist land of things just from how I've been raised, the culture I've been in. Like, even though if my, I myself am not always linked to the denomination in my heart, like it's obvious I still go to a Southern Baptist seminary. So I kind of have to agree somewhat with what they're doing. Otherwise, I'm a terrible student. And I, as a result of this, I don't always have the highest view of alcohol itself. But that doesn't mean I want it eradicated from the earth. Personally, I despise the taste of alcohol. And I don't drink it unless that taste can get masked by the overwhelming taste of something else. Like, I waited. I waited. Until I was 21, when I was old enough to drink it legally. And what was my reward? Something I didn't like. All that year, all those years of buildup for that, for the taste of alcohol, that aftertaste, that ugly, harsh taste that I can barely describe. I, I just can't handle it. And I know other people can, and that's just fine. Don't ask me to do it. And currently, like I haven't had anything alcoholic for about two years. And part of that is due to a contract I signed with my seminary where I'm forbidden from drinking or gambling for as long as I'm a student. And another part of it is that it's something I choose not to pursue. Like, you know, if I'm offered something, my instinct is saying, yeah, sure, I'll try it out, because chances are I haven't. But I can't do that right now for at least, hopefully, maybe a year and a half with this new degree plan. Maybe a little longer, depending on how things go. But if I'm going to be a man of my word, I can't touch it. I signed a paper. I'm either a man who says I agree with what I sign or I don't. And I'm hoping to be a man of my word. So until that is up, I'm not touching it again. Even though I've been presented with several opportunities to do so in a private setting where, I mean, other than the fact that I would be breaking that, you know, covenant I signed, nothing would have been wrong. But I still would have been wrong to do that. Alcohol itself is not something evil. Now, let me get this straight. I said it a second ago, but let me say it again. There is nothing inherently wrong with alcohol. Let me say that louder for the Baptists in the back. There is nothing inherently wrong with alcohol. But, like with many things, there are ways to abuse it, most notably being drunk. In the same way that narcotics cause us to lose control of ourselves, so too does getting drunk which leads us into scenarios where we do things we never would have done had we had our inhibitions in check. If you just drink one drink, you're probably not going to get drunk unless you're a real lightweight. And I know there are some people out there. I must definitely not one of them. 
but I know other people are. So just know what you're capable of. And if you drink, drink before you get that state of drunkenness. You're not helping anybody by doing that. You're not being a good witness by doing that. Well, how do I know this is wrong? Well, let's look at scripture. Hopefully that's where I get my, most of my answers from. In Proverbs 23, 21, excuse me, 20 through 21, in the CSB, we see, don't associate with those who drink too much wine or with those who gorge themselves on meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor and grogginess will clothe them in, it will clothe them in rags. Now, two things are spoken against there, one of which I am extremely guilty of. Drunkenness is called evil, and the glutton is called evil. Uh, someone you shouldn't associate with. Sorry, they're not called evil in that verse. I apologize. Even though it is evil and sinful. It's just not said so in that verse. I apologize. So me, I, like I said earlier, I love eating things that I shouldn't eat a lot of. And as a result, my body is not where it should be if I had been taking care of myself. I'm not 500 pounds overweight, but I'm still, for my body size, overweight. And the reason for doing that is because I have let gluttony attack me. I know that's something you're also probably never going to hear. Outside, I have heard it preached at least two or three times from a Baptist uh, pulpit. Thank God for that. Wise people who did that. But gluttony isn't something we, we harp on as much as that drunkenness part. Well, because one is more pleasurable to us than another. So oh, it's, not, it's okay if I just eat this extra food. We just have everyone over for a good old Sunday lunch together and we have all this fatty food here and high in cholesterol and fried foods and oh, don't worry about all the sugar in that drink and that sweet tea. It's all good. And it's fine on its own. If I don't eat the excess, it's the same way with drunkenness and wine and alcohol. There's nothing wrong with them by themselves. It is how I use them that makes me sin. Where I choose to sin. Whether it's the food I eat or the drinks I drink. Let's go. This isn't only in the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. In Ephesians 5.18 in the KJV. Paul writes, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, one of the things I brought up earlier is that being drunk takes away your will from you. Well, there is one way the Bible does ask you to have your will taken away from you, and that is to remove the human parts of yourself, the old man that you were, the old woman that you were before Christ came into your life and changed you into this new creation. You're supposed to get rid of that. You're supposed to be filled with the Spirit instead. And Paul, this isn't the only time he brings it up. Uh, a couple of times in 1 Corinthians and uh, Galatians. Uh, he also brings it up when he's talking about elders in the church and Titus. So it's not just that one isolated incident. But there are other examples of wine being just perfectly fine. What was Jesus' first miracle again? All turning water into unfermented grape juice. No, it was turning water into wine. His first recorded miracle in John 2. Well, that tells me Jesus is okay with it. And you'd have to do some great logical leaps that would render you mad and insane the moment you landed to say, oh, well, that's not what he was actually doing. Or like he was trying to make a point, like they're just getting drunk at the party. Or, or it's just, it's not wine. It's just translated wrong. It's, it's just grape juice. No, don't do this to yourselves. <laughs> we had that whole conversation about not being foolish earlier. 
when it comes to how people use symbols. In the same way, don't be foolish about the words in the Bible just because they fit your agenda. If something doesn't fit my agenda and Jesus says something different to it, you know who I should look after? Not my agenda, but what Jesus says. As the only perfect person who has ever existed in this world, I should listen to him. So Jesus' first miracle is bringing wine. Let's go back to Paul. Because we've seen in the Old and New Testament that drinking to excess and drunkenness is forbidden. Actually, before we get to that, there is something else I didn't need to bring up. You want more proof of all that? Of why it's so evil? Why it does terrible things to people? Why we are called not to do it? I have a couple of examples. Genesis 19. Lot is made drunk by his daughters, who after surviving the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, believe that they are all that remains of humanity. And they have sex with him, leading to the birth of two children. Not exactly what you wanted to hear right there. That's not what I want to hear, but that's scripture. Nabal, in 1 Samuel 25, drinks and eats to excess, causing him to die in a, a drunken binge. He had a rage the night before, and he ends up dead the next day. Sounds like both of those were bad for him. In 2 Samuel 13 and 1 Kings 16, Amnon and Elah were all murdered because they were too drunk to defend themselves. If they had been sober-minded, maybe they could have done something. Now, I'm not saying they were great people. Both of them were most definitely not. But if they were sober-minded, that wouldn't have happened to them. And Esther 1, which was covered a couple weeks ago by Buddy Walk with Jesus, you should really check out what Joe's doing there. He's doing a really good job on Esther. We see King Xerxes get drunk, demand his wife Vashti appear before him, and then see him get angry because she rightfully calls him out on it. So rather than accept blame, he gets rid of her. This woman he supposedly likes and loves as part of his official harem, as part of the main wife. So once again, does this mean we can't drink wine because we have all those terrible examples of people abusing it? No, it doesn't. It simply means we can't get drunk on it. Recall the verse from Ephesians where Paul told them not to be drunk with wine, as I read from 1 Timothy 5.23 in the NLT, which states, Don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. That very same Paul, who earlier spoke against drunkenness, tells his best and favorite student who is like a son to him to also drink wine for the sake of his health. You know why? Because wine, in certain amounts, is good for you. Yeah, it's good for you. So don't disagree with God and God's people when they are saying truth. If Paul says it's okay, it's okay. He is speaking as a representative of God when he is sending out those letters to the people. He is speaking truth. He is speaking scripture to them. Now earlier, except before, we went through the book of Romans where Paul talked of how some members of the church can do things and like things that others don't. Alcohol is a perfect example of this. I can't remember if I brought it up in that, but it really is. So long as no one is drinking to excess, no one is is getting drunk, there is nothing wrong with alcohol. But there is nothing wrong either with how I choose not to drink. Neither one is superior to the other. I'm not more morally righteous than someone else because I don't drink alcohol. They're not better than me because they can handle it better. They like the taste. They enjoy the feeling. Neither one is correct. 
Both are just things. They can become idols. I can become morally superior in my mind because I don't think I'm better than you, uh, you drunkard. Or someone else can say, oh, that guy over there, that loser, he doesn't even drink wine. Like, how is he supposed to hang out and find friends? I've heard arguments on all different sides of this. Because people get too in their heads and prideful for their own good. Look, there's anything I want you to learn from this example before we get back to Noah. Love your brothers and sisters, whether they drink or they don't. God died for them either way. Jesus died for them either way. Now let's get back to Noah's drunkenness. Some people argue that there's nothing wrong with getting drunk when you're alone because you're not hurting anyone. There is a certain logic to that. Other than the health concerns that it could cause. I mean, you never know if you're alone. Even if you're with people you trust and you're drunk, well, they have to go to sleep at some point in time. What if you're not asleep? What if you do something? What if you harm yourself or you stumble down the stairs and there's no one to look after you? This presumes no one's also going to be walking in on you either, which is exactly what happens to Noah here. He's discovered the effects of his own wine, presuming if he's the one who invented it or whatever. And what happens? He gets drunk and he takes off all his clothes because he's not thinking straight. Ham, his son, finds him in this state and mocks his father over it. When he reports this to Shem and Japheth, they do the right thing, look away from their father's disgrace, and clothe him to honor him even when he himself is not being honorable. Noah is not the hero in that moment. Noah is a human being like you and me who has made a conscious choice to do wrong. But he still needs to be honored. He's still someone created in the image of God. Now, there are some commentaries out there, uh, especially your early Jewish uh, commentaries on this that have survived to this day, uh, who believe that Ham did something sexually explicit to his father here in order to explain how angry he gets later, uh, such as you know, castrating his dad or sleeping with his mother or somehow abusing Noah sexually. Now, there is nothing spelled out in the text that says what it was either way, but we do see how he dishonored his father by not helping when he was at his most vulnerable. So with the text explicitly, it seems to be something in a cultural sense of you're not honoring your father, you're not protecting him, you're, you're acting like someone who doesn't love his family. That is why the outburst comes out at Ham and Canaan as well. We'll get to that in a second. Now, perhaps if Ham had laughed to himself at his father being in such a state and then proceeded to cover him up, then nothing would have happened. Like, that's a comical scene. Like, I, it would be hard not to laugh if I saw that. I would be very upset that my, you know, if I walked into my dad like that, but also be like, man, I thought you were better than that, and chuckle and then proceed to clothe him. Like, I, I'm not perfect. That's probably how I would react. Maybe I don't know. I've never been in that situation. Maybe I'd be way more honorable than I have this false image of myself in my head. I don't know. But the point is, Ham didn't do that. Instead, he chose to make things worse for Noah by bringing his nakedness pup by making his nakedness public knowledge to his family. If he had just stopped right there, if he had just covered him, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But we don't live on what ifs. We live on what happens. And what happened is he didn't do what he, sp he was supposed to have done. As a result, Canaan gets cursed. Now, what did Canaan do to get cursed instead of his father? Well, there are several reasons. 
uh, scholars have said, like it's not explicitly said why Canaan, other than the fact that Ham is mentioned as a father of Canaan several times before this point to show us because Canaan hasn't been introduced yet. So one being that as one of his successors, Canaan being cursed affects Ham's legacy for generations to come. It's like, hey, I can't curse you in that way, Ham, because we need you to father children who will be able to spread out into the world like God intends. But I can curse Canaan because, yeah, he's alive. He's going to have children, but those children are going to be cursed because of uh, their connection to you. That's what some people would say. And some believe that Noah was given the ability to prophesy against Canaan because of what his descendants would become to God's chosen people, Israel, through Shem, and thus wasn't prophesying against Canaan himself, but them instead. I, I lean a little closer to that one when it comes to these, these interpretations. Um, it's never explicitly stated that Noah is prophesying here. However, if you do notice in your Bibles, like that text should be a little different than everything else. That's typically done when uh, Hebrew poetry is kind of brought into the scene. And that's one way this could be tied into maybe being a prophecy is that sometimes uh, we see in Hebrew prophecies, not every single one, but a lot of the time they're, they're in this kind of poetic kind of structure. And that's why they may have been tabbed to the right a bit in your Bible like they are in mine to showcase that fact. So that's a possibility. Uh, and some think that possibly Canaan uh, was there with his dad, Ham, and he just wasn't mentioned as being there. And that's why he was cursed in this for seeing Noah in his drunken state. I, I don't, I'm not big on that one either because once again, it's not mentioned in the text, but we are dealing with a book that doesn't explicitly mention everything due for several factors including length, including like, hey, let's get to the important parts. Maybe Moses didn't think this was important enough. Maybe God said, hey, don't write that down and just told him, I don't know. I wasn't there. Regardless, the curse remains and will be fulfilled generations afterward. And all because Ham didn't respect and love his father enough to take care of him in such a wounded state. There's nothing inherently wrong when one of your friends does something stupid to laugh at them. There is something wrong with not helping picking them back up or talking to him afterward and say, hey, man, you probably shouldn't do that again. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to cause harm to someone else by doing that. Ham wasn't honoring his father or his family by bringing attention to the fact that his father was drunk and naked. Now, if he'd gone there and said, hey, guys, uh, dad's naked right now. I don't know what to do. And because it's the heat of the moment, like sometimes you get in that moment and you, you just don't react the way you think you should like that. Yeah. It could have been just fine. Once again, that's a, what if Ham didn't do that. Now, before we end today, let us get to a simpler topic. And that of course, being racism, <laughs> we've been all over the place here today. And I don't mean to make light of this fact, but there's just so much here and so many people abusing scripture for their own ends. And you either laugh or you just end up in despair. Now, perhaps you have no clue what I'm talking about here. And you're like, what do you mean racism? How the heck is that in the text here? Well, it's not, but let me help you. Uh, maybe you've been blessed to have never once heard of this idea once in your life. Well, I'm sorry. 
but I'm here to ruin that sweet summer child mind of yours. Several people, predominantly white, have claimed who who claimed to be with Christ, who claimed him as their own, also claimed with that same mouth that said Jesus is Lord, that this verse was meant by God to be directed against black people or people of African descent. They claim that since Europeans, as we will discover in chapter 10 next time, are descended from Shem and Japheth, that God was prophesying through Noah that Ham's descendants were meant to be their slaves. We see Canaan is meant to be a servant to his brothers. That is there in the text right there. Now, they bring up that idea of all Africans should be slaves. Nothing could be further from the truth. For one, only Canaan is called out in this manner, who, if you know your history, did not settle Africa. Canaanites, surprisingly enough, went to the land of Canaan and are descended from Canaan there. Canaan, you might know if you look at a map, is next to Africa, but is not in Africa. But other sons of Ham did, but they themselves were not affected by this curse because they're not called out in it. Now, do you see any other proper nouns besides Shem, Japheth, and Canaan? No, because they're not in there. You see how perfect that is? Only Canaan is mentioned. It requires a Herculean feat of mental gymnastics and unfounded ego to make the claim that this was directed towards Africans and that this means they were meant to be slaves and subservient to Europeans or insert race here. Uh, switch the races around. It's the same thing as I talked about earlier in Genesis 3 with the seed of the serpent and people saying, well, this is the race I don't like and therefore they're descended from the union of Eve and the serpent. When it has no textual basis and even if it did, they would have been wiped out in the flood before all this happened. You've got to think critically here. Canaan is the only one mentioned by name. Ham isn't mentioned by name. Then you would have had a better case for this stupid idea. The descendants of Ham do end up in Africa, as we'll find out in Genesis 10. But Canaan doesn't. This makes no sense. It makes no logical biblical, or any other sense to correlate these two ideas. Canaan is cursed, therefore Africans are cursed too. Do you see? We're missing some steps there. If you're thinking logically, which I presume, if you're listening to this, you do. And if you don't, I'm here for you. Let's work out this together. I'm not trying to say you're stupid. I'm saying you might have been misled by someone who thought they were speaking truth or were trying to justify their own opinion. And if you, you do think that way, please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. We've got to get that out of your head. You deserve better for yourself. As is often the case in ideas like this, people can't even do wrong right. People are racist out there. I know you're all surprised. That is wrong. That is evil. But they can't even do that right. Like if this was in the text, if it actually said that, maybe they would have had a case. It's still evil, it's still against everything, but maybe, maybe they could add something. But there is no logical connection to the two if you have a brain. And it is so terribly widespread uh, in the culture that this is meant to affect 
Ham's descendants as a whole, rather than the explicitly called out Canaan, that even the Wikipedia article for this calls it the curse of Ham rather than the curse of Canaan. There is nothing in scripture that justifies racial hatred. Not even the extermination of the Canaanites that should have happened had Israel done their job in Joshua and Judges. As stated before previously in this podcast, this was not racially charged, but culturally so. These were evil people, not because they were a particular race, but because they practiced evil things. If you use this verse in Genesis as justification for hatred, you have proven you have understood nothing God has spoken of in his book. There is nowhere in scripture where God says, all right, guys, we got to hate the Jews now because Jesus came back. There's no one in scripture that says, hey, those guys from Africa, they ain't making it. There's no one in scripture that says, hey, you guys don't know about North America yet or South America, but these guys called First Nations people. And well, not, since they're not mentioned in scripture, that means they're obviously of the devil. Like there's nowhere in there where that could be said by a rational human being who is thinking straight. There's plenty that could be twisted for people's own ends because they have a presupposition and they will use whatever it takes to make the Bible say what they want it to say. And we need to be careful about that, not just with racism, but with anything. People can twist scripture to say whatever they want to. And we need to avoid that. We need to stay away from false prophets, from false teachers who would ever say anything contradictory to God's word. Because we end up in situations like this, where for hundreds of years, just in America alone, there's an entire world out there that will use this verse too in separate ways that has infiltrated other minds that otherwise never would have thought of this and said, well, there's got to be slaves because, I mean, Cain and Ham, they're supposed to be servants. And with that in mind, let's get to our last bit here and we'll close off. This is how the story of Noah ends. A man, the only man, it seems, who was righteous enough, who was faithful enough to be delivered from the destruction of the entire world. And what does he do? He gets high off his own supply and gets dishonored for it. And then after that, lives for 350 years or somewhere this happens in those 350 years and nothing else is said about his exploits save for the legacy he offers in his descendants spreading across the earth. Now that's a great legacy, but remember how this story started and remember how it ended. Let's not end up in the same way. If I'm doing my job right, I want to be considered righteous by God. I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. But I don't want my story to end with something with a huge scandal at the end. Because there are plenty of people out there who do know Christ. And that's where they ended up. Because they weren't focusing on what mattered. And we got to focus on what matters. And with that, thank you all for listening. And you can definitely see why I didn't include Genesis 10. after all this so i thank you for listening this whole time with me as we went through genesis 9 uh please get a chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice to help us with the ratings there to get more people involved if you're interested in my fiction writing you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on amazon by searching for the name mc ashley if you're all interested in some further solid studies into the bible and its teachings and check out the other members of the Amazon ministries podcasting network I had a fun time the other day on systematic ecology talking about uh, the origins of Dragon Ball and all that jazz. It was a ton of fun. 
Uh, also on our YouTube page there, I started the Spidey Swing Buys, where I'm going chronologically through release order of every Spider-Man appearance ever. Uh, lots of fun stuff out there. But you can contact me for this podcast in specific at letnothingmoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.